The second edition of the Flushing's Finest podcast starts right now. Little roller up along first, behind the back, it gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight, and the Mets win it. Lopez wants it away. And it's hit deep to left center. Andrew Jones on the run. This one has a chance. Home run by Piazza, and the Mets lead three to two. He's fucking out! It has happened! In their 51st season, Johan Santana has thrown the first no-hitter in New York Mets history! This is the Flushing's Finest Podcast. I am your host, uh, Joshua Marlowe, and I'm joined today by what's going to be the regular co-host, my um, one of my best friends in the world. He also uh, is the voice of Charlotte FC here in Charlotte, North Carolina. He is Will Palachik. I know him more as Willie P. Buddy, welcome to the podcast. How are you, man? This is something that you and I have wanted to do for a very long time. I'm, I'm glad we're finally doing it. Uh, the Mets are something that I've loved uh, before I even knew how to love. Uh, so from that aspect, uh, it's very fitting that we are now putting our our voices to this this team that frustrates us, but I think a lot of times we also get redeemed by them as well. Yeah, no, I, I, I do think that's a really great way to put it. Um, I want you to know that in the first edition, I did introduce myself and how I became a Met fan. <laughs> and so I covered the background that was young Josh being a St. Louis Cardinals fan at one time. And so when I was introducing the pod and setting up that you were going to be a part of this, also our good buddy Anthony Pagnotta, we kind of know him more so as Flounder, he's going to join. Y'all were a lot longer lifelong Met fans than I, but you being the oldest – You've seen a lot. You've been around the block a lot more. So introduce your Met fandom and maybe one or your two favorite uh, Met memories growing up. So um, I was born in 1987, for the sake of context. Uh, Were you conceived during Game 6? I was. No, I was. I was. My mother was pregnant during Game 6. So <laughs> according to my father and mother, I had probably the best seat in the house. The unfortunate part is I had an obstructed view seat. So I couldn't see the ball go through Bill Buckner's legs. My parents actually were at the uh, the game where they clinched the division in 86 together. And so there was an old T-shirt that I had that my father used to wrap up with me uh, after he would give me a bath that was the divisional championship shirt. And I ended up wearing that for a little bit in my infancy. But uh, I've loved this team so much. There's always a, there's a picture that's in our house of me as a baby, one of my first baby pictures of me in a New York Met onesie. Uh, so that that to me is is kind of it takes you back as far as how long my Met fandom lasts. Uh, unfortunately, being born in '87, I missed out on the '86 uh, fanfare. Uh, too young to remember '88. Most of my Met fandom memories were uh, kind of trudging through that period in the '90s. Uh, I, our family actually moved to Singapore for about three and a half years, so I, I was devoid of a very dark period of New York Met baseball, the Dallas Green years and the first couple of years under Bobby Valentine. The weird thing about doing that was that being in Singapore, we couldn't get the games, obviously, over there. 
but we subscribed to a service. It was called Pontel, and we would send away, and they would send us the games or as, as many games as we wanted on a VHS tape. But every game they would send was a win. So you'd be thinking, oh, my God, they're doing well. Like there's one particular game I remember in 97 where John Olderwood had a walk-off homer against the Rockies. And I'm thinking, man, this is great. The Mets are doing this and also Like, I think Armando Reynoso started the game or whatever. And uh, and I look in the USA Today the next day, and they're in fourth place in the NLEs. So I'm sitting there. I'm like, they can't be that good. And, and it, it was, you know, it, it seemed that kind of kind of sums up the Met fandom is that there are great moments that out that that unfortunately are outnumbered by lots of tra- of, of tragedy. I don't want to say tragedy, but moments of where you are disappointed, but. 99 was great. Uh, I honestly feel like the 99 team was better than the 2000 team. If you think about the strengths of that team, uh, the greatest infield ever, I-, I wish the 99 team would have been able to get past the Braves and go up against the Yankees because I feel like they had a better shot than the 2000 team, not to downgrade the 2000 team at all, but I think they had a bit of an easier road uh, to win the pennant that year beating the Cardinals. But uh, but those two years were great. Uh, 2006 uh, – had its very great positives. I felt like that was one of the best pound-for-pound Met teams that I've had in my lifetime. Uh, But the problem that is they ran into the Cardinals that year, too. Unfortunately, I was living in Missouri at the time, so I had to deal with all the Cardinal fans uh, just completely. They're nice fans, though, right? Not not when it comes to the Mets. They have something... They have something backwards about the Mets. Uh, they have a nickname for them out there. They call them Pond Scum. Uh, it dates back to their rivalry in the 80s when they both were in the same division. So in that aspect, I couldn't wear Met clothes. This is some, And I'm somebody who has a Met drawer. I have a drawer that is dedicated to all my Mets uh, paraphernalia. I could not wear one drawer of my dresser out for an entire year because I was that ashamed of being a Met fan. It's the only time I've been that ashamed of being a Met fan until, of course, the next two years when they collapsed down the stretch in 07 and 08. Those two were, were, were very, very hard to, to handle. Uh, loved the resurgence that happened in the mid-2010s in 2015, mm-hmm. uh, going to the World Series. Uh, I got to surprise my little sister, who is also a lifelong Met fan, with World Series tickets that year. It was really, really awesome. Unfortunately, we were at Game 4 with Danny Murphy had the ball going underneath his glove, so uh, he's forever vilified for me in that aspect, despite what happened uh, during the postseason with the six home run games uh, in a row. Uh, also got to be at Mike Piazza's Hall of Fame induction. She was a big Mike Piazza fan, and I took her to that. Uh, and uh, basically, a lot of uh, ups and downs in between from there till now, and uh, I'm excited about the 2023 season. You know, I, I, I think we all are. I think, uh, you know, with the job that Steve Cohen has done, adding talent and, and depth and resources in this organization, you've got a world-class manager in Buck Showalter. You've got two Hall of Fame pitchers. So I, I do think we're all excited, but as you were kind of laying out, there there is a history of when this team is supposed to be really, really good. They don't live up to the hype, but I've got a weird feeling that's not going to happen this year. Uh, well, so what, I mean, you, uh, the one thing that you mentioned is is ownership. I mean, how long were we as Met fans clamoring for an owner that would spend and spend smartly? I mean, I feel like every time we came across a major free agent, it was always, you know, is Fred Wilpon going to open up the checkbook? Is uh, uh, my buddy uh, – uh, Brian, who's a Met fan, used to call him Freddie Coupon. You know that that was <laughs> that was always the way that, that he would refer to him. And so from from that aspect, it was always you know oh we can't afford Alex Rodriguez, we can't afford Ken Griffey Jr. They don't want to come to to play in New York and play with the Mets. So 
I, I feel like now, even though Steve Cohen has kind of taken on a bit of a villain's uh, eye in the eyes of a lot of owners and a lot of fan bases, it's something that I think the Met fan really embraces and wants. And the thing that I love, too, is that they didn't get ridiculous with the spending. I mean, yes, the spending is above the luxury tax. It's the highest above the luxury tax. But I think there were some ways where you maybe could have said they were a, a bit of a spendthrift situation, whether or not they were going to go off to DeGrom or the situation that happened with Correa, which I know we're going to talk about. But uh, they at least had uh, a measured nature to the way they went and spent their money this offseason. Yeah, no, they definitely did, and that's what we're here to do today uh, with, spring, with spring training officially over a week in the books because this is only our second edition. We are going to look back at the offseason this team did compile, but with you being the noted Mets historian or so on the podcast, I thought it would be a fun little feature for you to do a little on this day in Mets history. Willie, what do you have for us today? So I, I followed this one account. Uh, I, I want to give them uh, credit. It's at uh, NYM History on Twitter, and it always has a this day in Mets history. Uh, the two signings that happened on this day could not be more polar opposites. On this date in 2010, the Mets signed veteran catcher Rod Barajas to a one-year, $1 million contract. The significance of that is I was at a Rod Barajas two-home run game. That was the first game I ever attended at City Field mm. in 2010, so that was pretty cool for me. It uh, means nothing to nobody else, but <laughs> they, uh, they beat the Nationals in that game, so I thought that was kind of cool. And on this date in 1966, the Atlanta Braves signed Tom Seaver to a $40,000 contract the commissioner of the league later nullified the deal, stating that Seaver is ineligible to sign because his collegiate baseball team played two exhibition games earlier in the year. And as people who are longtime Mets fans know, Seaver basically went into a lottery, and the Mets ended up picking him and getting his uh, his draft rights or his signing rights. And the rest, as they say, is history. He becomes the franchise. Wow, yeah, the, you're right. Those were two polar opposite signings there well now let's dive right into this offseason recap and we'll set it up with the free agents that the Mets see uh the Mets lost and the ones that they signed so the ones that left New York were of course Jacob DeGrom for Texas Chris Bassett he's now in Toronto Trevor May is in Oakland thank God Seth Lugo is in San Diego uh Taiwan Walker in the division with Philadelphia Trevor Williams also in the division with Washington same thing with Dom Smith uh, Michael Gibbons wound up in Baltimore. And then, no, no small loss. <laughs> and then Jolie Rodriguez, uh, he's in Boston. Now the ones that we signed that really were a big part of the the, 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 the the spending spree put together by Steve Cohen, of course the closer, Edwin Diaz, the center fielder, Brandon Nimmo, one of the better relief pitchers that came out of the bullpen for the Mets from about July on, Adam out of, out of Vino. And then you get to the big guys. You got Justin Verlander, Kodai Senga, Jose Quintana, David Robertson, Tommy Pham, and Donnie Mendick. We'll start with the obvious, Willie, because one of the biggest things regarding last season was the future of Jacob deGrom and, and should the Mets sign him or should they let him walk. I think we all wanted him back as a member of the Mets, but at the right price. And so when we saw the contract that Texas gave him, was it ultimately the right decision for the Mets to let him walk away from the franchise that he had built, or I don't say he had built, but he had carried the last four or five seasons. So I have a very complicated way of looking at this because the the thing that I, the sensation I had as a Met fan watching Jacob DeGrom the last two years, 
it, it honestly gave me a teeth gritting problem because anytime I saw him take the mound, it felt like I was, you know, walking on eggshells because mm. I was, you know, Waiting bra- for him to get bra- hurt? bracing for an injury or bracing for something because you, you had put all your hopes on this interstellar pitcher, a great pitcher, but one that for whatever reason over the last couple of years has failed to make the kind of start depth that you were wanting to have him make. And and that's part of why I feel like five years for 185 seemed like a bridge too far for me. I think he honestly didn't want to be a part of the organization anymore. I don't have that on any authority other than what I've read and, and some of the reporting that I've seen. But I do feel like there was kind of a desire from Jake to get away from the bright eyes and bright lights of New York and, and go somewhere where there's a little bit less attention on the ball club. Uh, not that the Rangers, this is not meant to disparage or, or slight their fan base or their following in any way, but the, the pressures and vigors of what happens in Arlington, Texas, uh, are more centered on a team that wears a star on their helmet as opposed to uh, a real baseball town like New York where you have two teams with very passionate and wild fan bases that garner a lot of the attention. So I think that was a big, big part of it. Uh, some people made issues about whether or not it was something involving, you know, the politics of New York kind of going into the conservative and liberal nature. I don't know if that had anything to do with it. I just feel like Texas stepped up to the plate. They wanted to to give him a big, big deal. And I honestly feel like the Mets had a number they didn't want to go, go past mm-hmm. because they'd been burned by this guy. And I think that there was a feeling in the organization where uh, there was uh, – I don't want to sit here and say that they wanted him gone, but I think there's a sense of relief from the organization that – they're not riding on his hopes, which were mercurial at best. And another thing, too, and, and, and this is something, I don't know if, if you shared this with me or I shared it with you, uh, that SI article that came yeah. out about him was eye-opening. Is very eye-opening. He didn't treat his teammates well. He was a bit of a jerk to teammates. And so in that aspect, I feel like there are probably a lot of people who are around the clubhouse who aren't necessarily uh, carrying a torch for number 48. Yeah, I think that was the one thing was that, like, you know, for me, you know, my, my, my Met fandom really does start with that with that 2015 run of the World Series mm-hmm. and, and, and that, that young quartet of pitching that you never really saw after that. But mm-hmm. Jacob deGrom became the shining star, back-to-back Cy Youngs, and he became dominant. Mm-hmm. He became the reason why I want, you know, like I, I remember I used to work a job where – I used to I, – I, there was a day where I had to go deliver a package for my boss. I had to drive all the way to Martinsville, Virginia, and back. Right. So it's about a seven-hour round trip. Well, I, I made – I got up early enough to leave and get back home because mm-hmm. the Mets had a random, like, 5.30 afternoon game. Right. And I was not going to miss Jacob DeGrom's start. Like, that's the type of impact he had. But, you know, I read that SI article. You know, you, you just hear the way that the guys in the booth would talk about him. Now, once they got access back to him, he was just a really – he was just an odd guy. For whatever reason, as dominant as he was on the field, mm. he didn't fit in off the field. Yeah. And, and I think that was something that was, you know, Buck Walter was able to navigate around because he's a world-class manager who's done it, you know, for a really long time. And so when we got to free agency, like, I wanted him back, but there was a number. Like, I think I said, like, at five years, 150, you could sell me on that. Mm-hmm. But once that number increased, I was okay with seeing him go somewhere else. But I think on the flip side, and you can really attest to this more than I can, for lifelong Met fans, we don't have to. You, you gotta, you gotta swallow a pill knowing that Tom Seaver and now Jacob Degrom, arguably the two best pitchers in the history of this franchise, weren't lifelong Mets. Well, the 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 Seaver one, 
is not necessarily his fault. This the Seaver. I mean, I don't, I don't know how much you know about the departure of Tom Seaver from his time with the Mets, but the Mets chairman of the board at the time, M. Donald Grant, was not a very popular figure in the city. And in 1977, the Mets were floundering under Joe Torre, and there was a war of words that was happening through the media involving Seaver and Nolan Ryan, his old teammate who had gone out to the California Angels. And uh, it was stirred up by somebody who was looked at as an M. Donald Grant plant in the New York uh, in the New York media, a guy by the name of Dick Young. And Dick Young wrote an article that basically painted Seaver's wife against uh, Nolan Ryan's wife and basically had reported that the wives were talking to each other and Lynn Ryan was talking to Nancy Seaver about, oh, how great life it is in California, Nolan got a new deal, et cetera, and so on. And that ended up being not necessarily true. Mm. That was a fabricated story, according to Tom. And so that was kind of the the straw that broke the camel's back for Seaver leaving the Mets. And then he came back in 83, and the only reason he didn't finish his career in New York is because Frank Cashin, the only – Dumb thing he did as a general manager of the Mets left him exposed in a uh, in a draft that ended up having him sign with the Chicago White Sox. So in, in terms of that, I, I give Seaver a little more grace than I would mm-hmm. Degrom. Uh, like I said before, I think Degrom uh, didn't really want to be a part of the organization. Though the, the the unfortunate part of it is that anytime you hype up a pitching trio or quartet with this organization, it, it doesn't necessarily have the staying power. The Mets uh, had. The, the young trio of Seaver, Kuzman, and Ryan. You could throw Gentry in there. Gentry uh, kind of held his own there in that 69 year. Uh, Nolan was kind of replaced by Matlack in 73, but those three never really had the, the long tenure that you would have wanted the Mets to have because uh, Matlack was somebody who I feel like was a very under-heralded man who was part of that 73 pennant team. Uh, in the 90s, I had Generation K that I grew up with, Isringhausen, Pulsifer, and Wilson. Uh, those three were constantly injured. Izzy came back as a closer, but never really lived up to the hype as a Met in his tenure with the organization. Pulsifer and Wilson both never really made it. Uh, and then, you know, those four that were together in 2015, you know, you had Harvey, you had Wheeler, you had Syndergaard, you had Mats. And none of them are with the organization anymore, and and even one of them is out of baseball, or at least trying to get back into baseball with Harvey. Uh, it, it's unfortunate, but it's part of the reason why I feel like a lot of organizations now aren't necessarily building their organizations around young pitching anymore. They're letting other organizations develop their pitching and getting them after their season because the way to success I'm seeing now with a lot of these teams develop young hitters yeah. and that's one thing the Mets have had to try and do because their their uh their minor league system and I know this from you know doing games in their minor league system for a couple of years uh was so credible incredibly starved for that kind of young hitting they never really had those kind of young hitting prospects after Reyes and Wright and, and I think you know once they got Pete Alonzo in that was one guy who I think kind of spurred the tie to try and change things there for them they need more players of that ilk as opposed to trying to develop young pitching because I think if you develop a young pitcher, unfortunately they're going to carry a pretty penny, and a lot of times they might end up making that penny elsewhere. Well, you know, the, the thing about going into this season is the Mets don't, don't only have to place DeGrom. They also got to replace Chris Bassett and Taiwan Walker. And, look, both, both of those guys were incredibly flawed. 
Uh, for Taiwan Walker, it was just the worst thing for him was ever the All Star break. Mm-hmm. Like his his two years in New York before the All Star break, he was All Star level quality. And then after the All Star break, for whatever reason, it's like he got dead arm and he wasn't the same guy. As for Bassett, as good as he was, like you would look at his numbers and say, man, he got a quality start. All the things that qualify, but he would have one inning. And it, the one inning, you know, for me was in Game Three of the NL uh, of the Wild Card Series, where he couldn't get the outs that he needed to get, and I was okay with with him not being brought back either. And, but the Mets had to go out and replace them, and they did so, as I mentioned, in the form of Justin Verlander, who's coming off another great season with the Astros, where they won another World Series championship. Then you've got Jose Quintana, a guy that's just a veteran guy that can eat up a lot of innings. And then you've got the guy that we're all, I think, the most excited for, and and Singa, because he's you know he's from overseas. He's got a a a, a pitch that Major League Baseball hasn't seen a whole lot. When you look at the, the the things that the Mets did do to replace the guys that they lost, do you think they did enough to still have one of the best rotations in the NL? Well, first of all, the the thing about Bassett is that I must have seen every bad Chris Bassett start <laughs> and, like, none of the good ones. Because I'm going back and and going back through his game log, and I'm trying to remember where exactly these games were. Like, eight innings of, of one-run ball, no one-earned runs against Cincinnati. I, I missed that game. <laughs> uh, the, the This game against the Braves where he had six innings of one-run ball, uh, only allowed a, a solo homer and two walks. I mean, I, I I don't remember that Chris Bassett. The Chris Bassett I remember is the one, like you said, in, in game three against San Diego where he couldn't get out of the fifth inning. So that, that, that to me, unfortunately, he was more defined by, you know, the long ball, unfortunately. Uh, I think that was kind of something that was a bit of a bugaboo for him, especially late in the season. I think that was something that, he could. When you're talking about a guy who can't hold balls in in Chase in a, I almost said Chase Stadium in City Field, you're having an issue, and, and I think that's a problem. Where uh, if if you are Chris Bassett, I know he's a live and die kind of fly ball pitcher, but unfortunately those fly balls uh, flew, flew, flew out of the park, flew a little <laughs> bit of a ways. So, looking at the at the Met rotation, I, I do feel like they did a lot to overhaul it. Uh, I know that you are a big fan of of uh, Justin Verlander coming in. I just, I have my concerns about, you know, a 40 year old pitcher like that. And that's, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to sit here and, and, and be an alarmist. It's just, I, I, I'm not trying to put all my eggs in that basket and that Verlander and Scherzer, two guys on the wrong side of 30 are going to anchor a rotation. But the one thing that is, I mean, I, if I just get me and get them to September and October healthy, because I'll take their abilities in October but can they make 25 starts? I mean, I don't know if they can yet because that's going to be something that I feel like is the biggest question that uh, goes alongside them. I think Cookie Carrasco got a bit of a raw deal his first year. He was kind of you know, bouncing around with injury. Uh, I love the Quintana addition. I think he's somebody who uh, has a point to prove. And Senga, I think, is somebody who's a total wild card at this point mm-hmm. because I think he's got all the upside in the world. Uh, the Mets don't have the best hitch history with Asian-born pitchers. Uh, Masato Yoshi was one that they had. They had the final years of Hideo Nomo. You uh, you don't remember Takashi Kashiwada who came back uh, in that. Uh, Jay So uh, was somebody who came up through the Mets system from Korea, never really had uh, had a good go of it. Uh, and then uh, Daisuke Matsuzaka, who 
again, uh, had more of his formable years with uh, with the Boston Red Sox. I gave you a, basically a, a running history of all the Mets that they had from Asia <laughs> there from the hist- from from that uh, without even looking it up. But uh, the point that I would say is that I think you have to have a bit of a tempered expectation with him. But if if, if he hits and you can go Verlander, Scherzer, and Senga in a in a short series. That's going to be hard to beat, especially if Senga is everything he's cracked up to be. Well, and the thing is, is that you know when you have Quintana and then you've got uh, you got uh, Carrasco, that also puts Peterson and Miguel maybe they're your your bullpen guys, or they're the guys you can deploy to give Scherzer and Verlander, you know, uh, uh, that that extra day that they might need. And that's what we just didn't have in years past. Mm-hmm. Now, now this rotation has depth. Well, you need you need seven starters to get through a season. Yeah, you need. I mean, and and not seven like quality starters, but you need people who can can take the ball when those upper five either get injured or, or have days off, or, or or you're trying to lengthen your rotation in a way because there is more that's demanded about pitchers in this day and age. Uh, I don't want to say it's more than you know the days of you know Seaver and Kuzman going nine innings and you know going and throwing complete games, but the the rigor that these guys put on their arms now with in terms of the torque and the the miles per hour that they are asked to throw on a day in day out basis and a start in start out basis is such to where it's it's not feasible with the way you're spending money on these assets to ask a guy to make 35 starts so mm-hmm. that's why I'm saying if I can get 25 out of Scherzer 25 out of uh, out of Verlander you know, I'm okay as long as they're healthy by the time September and October roll around. How many games into the Met season does Keith Hernandez have to issue an apology for making a comment about K Dup that he shouldn't make on S N Y? Uh I'd say by Father's Day. <laughs> I'd say the over under at Father's Day. <laughs> uh, all right, so when I was going through the free agents that were signed, uh Carlos Correa's name wasn't on that list. And that was a guy that the Mets had signed and mm-hmm. then he had a physical and I don't know if you saw the one comment that I, I think it was the Mets doctor or the same doctor that the Mets and the Giants both used. Said it was, quote, the worst ankle he's ever seen from a baseball player. Mm-hmm. But that was a guy that, like, the Mets had already pretty much won the offseason. But, when, you know, when, when that was – when we thought he was coming to Flushing, I think we were already starting to hoist the World Series trophy. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think we actually sent a text that, like, holy crap, we're going to win a World Series. Right. One thing that I think we were really frustrated with Billy Epler last year at the deadline was – they didn't add enough pop to the offense. Mm-hmm. We knew they needed some more firepower because the pitching wasn't going to hold up. It doesn't. You know, you're not you're not going to pitch the way that they were pitching in the first half for 162 and then the postseason. So you bring back Brandon Nimmo, who maybe is the best leadoff guy in baseball if you if you really dive into the analytics side of things. But outside of that, the other guys that they added from an offensive standpoint, Tommy Pham, who's a guy that might be getting fights over fantasy football leagues, mm. and then you got Danny Mendick. Do you think they did enough? Offensively, I know I know Vogelback is back on a team friendly deal. Your, he's also, your, your fat uncle, although, <laughs> he, lo, although not as fat. Yeah, now. He, he's lost 20, 30 pounds. Alonzo's in the best shape of his life. When you look at this team from an offensive standpoint, are you seeing okay? Th- this is a lineup that can carry us one sixty two, or are you seeing a lineup that come the trade deadline we're going to be asking Billy Epler go get us another bat? I still think they're one bat short, oh, um, and I think that I I don't know. Where that bat plays, if it's an outfield bat or if it's somebody who can play third. I mean, the the issue that I had is that you know Correa represented somebody to me who really could protect Pete Alonso because if you're going to bat Alonso behind Lindor, uh, I feel like 
you're going to have a lot of pitching around uh, Alonzo to get to what's behind him. Now you could throw McNeil there, and there are a lot of ways that that Buck Showalter can can rework the lineup to make sure that that there is a threatening hitter behind Pete Alonzo, but it can't be Eduardo Escobar. I'm sorry, I, I'm not trying to sit here and, and say that that he's somebody who disappointed because he had some very big hits mm-hmm. in 2022. But there were also more times where, you know, he would strike out with men on base and he would not come through in the clutch. And he was also hurt for a little bit part of the year, too. So in that aspect, I look at the Mets and I say they need somebody to make sure that Pete Alonso can be the all and out threat that he can be. Because there are times where Pete Alonso is going to be, you know, going through a bit of a, a slump when it comes to strikeouts. You know, Pete's strikeout numbers, unfortunately, are continuing to climb. And that's something that has me very, very concerned but part of the reason I think they climbed last year is because there wasn't anybody behind him that could actually protect him and force a pitcher to have to be in the strike zone with him. There were a lot of things that he did outside of the strike zone last year that he didn't do the years before because he had ample protection in this lineup. And I think that's a big, big part of why I feel like they're probably going to be in the market for another hitter come the trade deadline. I just wonder if, if if there's cautious optimism inside that front office that that's going to come in the form of Francisco Alvarez. Of course, Brett Beatty, you know, his first career hit in Major League Baseball was a home run against the Braves. You got Mark Vientos, but that's cautious optimism. Yeah. Or, uh, optimism. I, I'd much rather go get, especially if we're wanting to chase a pennant, I'd much rather have a seasoned bat that's going to be out there like there is every trade deadline, it seems like, as opposed to asking a first or second year player to help spark the offense. They're, they're, they're still talking about Alvarez like he's somebody who's going to start the year at Syracuse, or I think it's foolish. I think mm. I think Alvarez is is your DH. I think he has to be, and then he catches maybe every fourth day, yeah, uh, in fa- in favor of Nito, and 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 that's the other part of it that I didn't like is I, I I don't know if they needed another bridge catcher to to escort Alvarez through. Uh, through the 23 season because while as much as you want to try and make him the everyday catcher this year, I still feel like you have to take him a little bit slower because he has to learn how to call games with his, with his pitching staff. Mm-hmm. He has to learn how to, to be a receiver and, and, and learn the aspects of the game in that manner at the major league level. I don't think he's there yet. And the one thing that we also know about his hitting is that anytime he goes up to a level, and, and you've made this point a couple different times to me privately, he has a struggle point yeah. at the beginning. He has an acclimation period where you know he's hitting in the 100s when he's trying to catch up to the big league pitching or the AAA pitching or the AA pitching. He gets there eventually. Oh, yeah, he does. But and When it does, it's fun to watch. But I think they, you need to start that clock as soon as possible. And, and on Beatty, I mean, I think that's a lot to put on the young man. I, I don't know if he's David Wright yet. I don't think he is. I don't think anybody, at, I don't think anybody is. But I do feel like from that aspect, uh, trying to, to foist that kind of uh, – those kind of expectations on that young man, it's 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 a lot right now. The last thing we're going to discuss before we do get out of here starts, or we, we'll, we'll circle back around to the owner. Because Steve Cohen, let's just put it point blank, he pissed off a lot of people this this winter. Good. With the way that he, he spent. But like you said, and I've listened to a couple of interviews he's done uh, you know, before spring training and, and when he was at uh, Port St. Uh, uh, Lucie the other day, he didn't think that it was outrageous. First off, he admitted that he was uh, that, that that inflation does exist in baseball mm-hmm. because numbers were up 20, 30 percent. That that caught him off guard. But when you've got the record payroll that this that this team has, 
I mean, they've, they're they're plus 130 to the second highest team in Major League Baseball, which is the Yankees, which is usually the owner of the highest payroll in baseball. How much more pressure does that add to this team to perform? Because no matter what, when they go to Baltimore, Cleveland, Tampa Bay, wherever it is they got to go, they're going to be vilified from the fan base and then the ownerships of those teams because now there's pressure on those owners to spend like Steve Cohen and the Mets are. I do want to at least uh, correct my earlier point. I do know that they, they got Omar Navarez at the catcher position too as well, talking about the catcher. So I, I didn't want to neglect signing him. I would have thought they would have tried to go and get somebody more of a, a starter-level guy. So I, I didn't want to neglect Omar Navarez on my previous point. But to your point you're making about, about Cohen, I, I love the refreshing honesty that – that he brings to the table. And the thing that I, I love that he said the best this offseason is that I probably had to spend a lot more money than I originally thought, but that's okay because I want to win. And it, it also comes with expectations. But I think the one thing he also said is just because I spent all this money doesn't mean I expect the World Series this year. He's like the anti-Steinbrenner in that way, in that you know just because I spend the money doesn't mean that I feel like we're going to be a World Series contender this year. There is some... There is a bit of humility that comes along with it for for Cohen, but there is still that desire to be like, hey, you know, we're sitting at 20 games over 500 at the end of July. We're, we're going to go get a hitter. Like, like that's mm. the thing I think that that Met fans really love. And even last year, I, I think the problem for them was while they had the desire to do that, the deals just weren't there for them. And that's the problem that, you know, that's that's on the onus. The onus is on the GM there to make those deals happen and, and make something out of nothing because – I think the the biggest challenge I think now for Billy Epler is how do you not be Sandy Alderson? Because what was the one thing that Sandy Alderson never had is that he never had kind of that that big deal other than, you know, the Ioannis Cespedes deal at the end of 15 that really cemented his legacy as somebody who knows how to get you through a season. Anybody can anybody can sign guys in the offseason because they're on the open market. But if you can make a deal at the trade deadline to make your team better, I, I remember, you know, some of the deals – you mentioned the Cardinals uh, in 2011 when they were able to make that big run. They were basically way out of a playoff spot in last place, and uh, their their general manager, John Moselock, had an incredible trade deadline that year, uh, brought in a bunch of guys, uh, reworked that bullpen, uh, and also reworked uh, the, the bench and got some more bats on the bench. Look at Alex Anthopoulos of the Braves doing that a yep. couple of years ago for their World Series championship. They had an amazing trade deadline where they reworked their bullpen. And they got a couple of bats, and they got themselves a championship. Those are the general managers you look towards and say, those are the guys who are the leaders of that position. Can Billy Epler get to that level because he's going to need to make a deal at some point in July that puts the Mets over the hump? Because I don't know if they're there just yet. I think the thing about Cohen, as much as I listen to him talk, is he's measured. And, and so, as he said, like, look, yeah, I spent, but, you know, numbers were up. And he also said, what's the best way for me to get my payroll down? We've got to develop the farm system. That's one thing, if you listen to him talk, he, he, he talks about that farm system more than, more than the team that's actually on the field mm -hmm. because he knows that's the key to, you know, having a, a long period of success, something this franchise, quite frankly, just has never experienced. And so I think if we can develop Alvarez, Beatty, Vientos – all those guys, and, and they become what we want them to become. Well, then you don't you don't got to go pay 162 million to you know uh, a, a guy that's not a member of the organization. I, I think with Epler, I, I think you're right. I, I think if this team's sitting there in July and it's evident 
that they are going to be in the race for the NL East, which I think is going to be a lot tougher this year given how good the Braves are. The Phillies got better this offseason. Um, but if, if they're there, I think he'll be – there'll be a greater sense of urgency because Steve Cohen will say, I've got the money, we've got the resources. But like you mentioned, the deals weren't there last year because everyone wanted a Soto. Mm-hmm. But they were also sending Josh Bell along with them, and that would have depleted the farm right. system. Well, you think about the golden ages of Met baseball. Like Wright and Reyes were homegrown. Alonzo, McNeil, same kind of mm-hmm. thing. The Mets of the 80s. The, the outside additions from that team were Hernandez, Carter, and, and, and Ojeda for the most part. Everything else was homegrown. Gooden was homegrown. Strawberry was homegrown. Mookie came from another organization, was homegrown. So it, it, it's, it's a scenario there. Ron Darling, homegrown. So when you think about the way that that organization developed, I do feel like they need to get kind of more of those prospects like the Vientoses, like the Beatys, more bi- and Alvarez, more big league ready. But I also do feel like it comes down to can you make that move when it's needed the most because a lot of teams in this era of baseball are defined by how they finish down the stretch, and they're going to need something like that in order to make that happen. Yeah, no, you, you brought up a great point. You look at the last handful of World Series winners, most of those teams, they won the trade deadline. And mm-hmm. so I think if the Mets are a lot more aggressive this time around, if, if they're in a position to be aggressive, I think we'll be a lot more comfortable and confident in this team making a run to the Fall Classic. Well, that's your look at the offseason uh, recap. Willie, you, you have anything else you want to add, buddy? I just I'm I'm ready to get going. I want I want to see games. I want to see everything happen, and uh, hopefully uh, we can ring in a championship this year, the first year of Flushing's finest. We do have a inter squad scrimmage today, and then of course their first two uh, spring training games are tomorrow. But I know with the Charlotte FC season and the MLS season kicking off tomorrow for you, that's where you know y- your attention will be, and rightfully so. I'll I'll. Uh... I'll, I'll I'll sit through it and uh, possibly uh, have it as I'm uh, getting ready for the game tomorrow. <laughs> but with that, guys, it is going to wrap up this edition of the show. But we do encourage you guys to rate, review, and ultimately subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on every major podcasting platform, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Uh, rate it, review myself, review Willie P. But more importantly, guys, we want you guys to hit that subscribe button. That way you don't miss any edition of the show throughout the remainder of the baseball season. What that is going to wrap up this edition of the show. I want to thank uh, Willie for hosting with me. We want to thank you guys for listening. And as always, let's go, go Mets. Mets. Put it in the box. Little roller up along first. Behind the bag. It gets through Buckner. Lopez wants it away. And it's hit deep to left center. Andrew Jones on the run. This one has a chance. Home run by Piazza. And the Mets lead 3-2. to He's stuck him out. It has happened. In their 51st season, Johan Santana has thrown the first no-hitter in New York Mets history.
is the Flushing's Finest Podcast. I am your host, uh, Joshua Marlowe, and I'm joined today by what's going to be the regular co-host, my um, one of my best friends in the world. He also uh, is the voice of Charlotte FC here in Charlotte, North Carolina. He is Will Palachik. I know him more as Willie P. Buddy, welcome to the podcast. How are you, man? This is something that you and I have wanted to do for a very long time. I'm, I'm glad we're finally doing it. Uh, the Mets are something that I've loved uh, before I even knew how to love. Uh, so from that aspect, uh, it's very fitting that we are now putting our our voices to this this team that frustrates us, but I think a lot of times we also get redeemed by them as well. Yeah, no, I, I do think that's a really great way to put it. Um, I want you to know that in the first edition, I did introduce myself and how I became a Met fan, mm-hmm. and so I covered the background that was young Josh being a St. Louis Cardinals fan at one time, and so when I was introducing the pod and setting up that you were going to be a part of this, also our good buddy Anthony Pagnotta, we kind of know him more so as Flounder, he's going to join. Y'all were a lot longer lifelong Met fans than I, but you being the oldest, you've seen a lot, you've been around the block a lot more. So introduce your Met fandom and maybe one of your two favorite uh, Met memories growing up. So um, I was born in 1987, for the sake of context. Uh, were you conceived during Game Six? I was no, I was, I was. My mother was pregnant during Game Six. So <laughs> according to my father and mother, I had probably the best seat in the house. The unfortunate part is I had an obstructed view seat, so I couldn't see the ball go through Bill Buckner's legs. My parents actually were at the. Uh, the game where they clinched the division in 86 together. And so there was an old T-shirt that I had that my father used to wrap up with me uh, after he would give me a bath that was the divisional championship shirt. And I ended up wearing that for a little bit in my infancy. But uh, I've loved this team so much. There's always a, there's a picture that's in our house of me as a baby, one of my first baby pictures of me in a New York Met onesie. Uh, so that that to me is is kind of – it takes you back as far as how long my Met fandom lasts. Uh, unfortunately, being born in 87, I missed out on the 86 uh, fanfare. Uh, too young to remember 88. Most of my Met fandom memories were uh, kind of trudging through that period in the 90s. Uh, I, our family actually moved to Singapore for about three and a half years. So I, I was devoid of a very dark period of New York Met baseball, the Dallas Green years and the first couple of years under Bobby Valentine. The weird thing about doing that was that being in Singapore, we couldn't get the games, obviously, over there. But we subscribed to a service. It was called Pontel. And we would send away, and they would send us the games, or as, as many games as we wanted, on a VHS tape. But every game they would send was a win. So you'd be thinking, oh, my God, they're doing well. Like, there's one particular game I remember in 97 where John Olderwood had a walk-off homer against the Rockies. And I'm thinking, man, this is great. The Mets are doing this and also Like, I think Armando Reynoso started the game or whatever. <laughs> and uh, and I look in the USA Today the next day, and they're in fourth place in the NL East. <laughs> so I'm sitting there. I'm like, they can't be that good. And, and it, it was, you know, it, it seemed that kind of kind of sums up the Met fandom is that there are great moments that – out that that unfortunately are outnumbered by lots of tra- of, of tragedy. I don't want to say tragedy, but moments of where you are disappointed. But '99 was great. Uh, I honestly feel like the '99 team was better than the 2000 team. If you think about the strengths of that team, uh, the greatest infield ever. I, I wish the '99 team 
would have been able to get past the Braves and go up against the Yankees because I feel like they had a better shot than the 2000 team, not to downgrade the 2000 team at all, but I think they had a bit of an easier road uh, to win the pennant that year, beating the Cardinals. But uh, but those two years were great. Uh, 2006 uh, had its very great positives. I felt like that was one of the best pound-for-pound Met teams that I've had in my lifetime. Uh, but the problem that is they ran into a Cardinals that year too. Unfortunately, I was living in Missouri at the time, so I had to deal with all the Cardinal fans uh, just completely. They're nice fans though, right? Not not when it comes to the Mets. They have something <laughs> – they have something backwards about the Mets. Uh, they have a nickname for them out there. They call them Pond Scum. Uh, it dates back to their rivalry in the 80s when they both were in the same division. So in that aspect, I couldn't wear Met clothes. This is some, And I'm somebody who has a Met drawer. I have a drawer that is dedicated to all my Mets uh, paraphernalia. I could not wear one drawer of my dresser out for an entire year because I was that ashamed of being a Met fan. It's the only time I've been that ashamed of being a Met fan until, of course, the next two years when they collapsed down the stretch in 07 and 08. Those two were, were very, very hard to, to handle. Uh, loved the resurgence that happened in the mid-2010s in 2015, mm-hmm. uh, going to the World Series. Uh, I got to surprise my little sister, who is also a lifelong Met fan, with World Series tickets that year. It was really, really awesome. Unfortunately, we were at Game 4 with Danny Murphy had the ball going underneath his glove, so uh, he's forever vilified for me in that aspect, despite what happened uh, during the postseason with the six home run games uh, in a row. Uh, also got to be at Mike Piazza's Hall of Fame induction. She was a big Mike Piazza fan, and I took her to that. Uh, and uh, basically, a lot of uh, ups and downs in between from there till now, and uh, I'm excited about the 2023 season. You know, I, I I think we all are. I think uh, you know the job that Steve Cohen has done, adding talent and and depth and resources in this organization. You've got a world class manager in Buck Showalter. You got two Hall of Fame pitchers. So I I do think we're all excited. But as you were kind of laying out, there there is a history of when this team is supposed to be really really good. They don't live up to the hype, but I've got a weird feeling that's not going to happen this year. Uh, well, so what, I mean, you, uh, the one thing that you mentioned is is ownership. I mean, how long were we as Met fans clamoring for an owner that would spend and spend smartly? I mean, I feel like every time we came across a major free agent, it was always, you know, is Fred Wilpon going to open up the checkbook? Is uh, uh, my buddy uh, – uh, Brian, who's a Met fan, used to call him Freddie Coupon. You know that that was <laughs> that was always the way that, that he would refer to him. And so from from that aspect, it was always you know oh we can't afford Alex Rodriguez, we can't afford Ken Griffey Jr. They don't want to come to to play in New York and play with the Mets. So I I feel like now, even though Steve Cohen has kind of taken on a bit of a villain's uh, eye in the eyes of a lot of owners and a lot of fan bases, it's something that I think the Met fan really embraces and wants. And the thing that I love, too, is that they didn't get ridiculous with the spending. I mean, yes, the spending is above the luxury tax. It's the highest above the luxury tax. But I think there were some ways where you maybe could have said they were a, a bit of a spendthrift situation, whether or not they were going to go off to DeGrom or the situation that happened with Correa, which I know we're going to talk about. But uh, they at least had uh, a measured nature to the way they went and spent their money this offseason. Yeah, no, they definitely did, and that's what we're here to do today. Uh, with, spring, with spring training officially over a week in the books, because this is only our second edition, we are going to look back at the offseason this team did compile. But with you being the noted Mets historian or so on the podcast, I thought it would be a fun little feature for you to do a little on this day 
in Mets history. Willie, what do you have for us today? So I, I followed this one account. Uh, I, I want to give them uh, credit. It's uh, at NYM History on Twitter, and it always has a this day in Mets history. Uh, the two signings that happened on this day could not be more polar opposites. On this date in 2010, the Mets signed veteran catcher Rod Barajas to a one-year, $1 million contract. The significance of that is I was at a Rod Barajas two-home run game. That was the first game I ever attended at City Field mm. in 2010, so that was pretty cool for me. Uh means nothing to nobody else, but <laughs> they, uh, they beat the Nationals in that game, so I thought that was kind of cool. And on this date in 1966, the Atlanta Braves signed Tom Seaver to a $40,000 contract. The commissioner of the league later nullified the deal, stating that Seaver is ineligible to sign because his collegiate baseball team played two exhibition games earlier in the year. And as people who are longtime Met fans know, Seaver basically went into a lottery and the Mets ended up picking him and getting his uh, his draft rights or his signing rights and the rest, as they say, is history. He becomes the franchise. Wow, yeah, you're right. Those were two polar opposite signings there. Well, now let's dive right into this offseason recap, and we'll set it up with the free agents that the Mets see, uh, the Mets lost and the ones that they signed. So the ones that left New York were, of course, Jacob deGrom for Texas, Chris Bassett, he's now in Toronto, Trevor May is in Oakland. Thank God. Seth Lugo is in San Diego. Uh, Taiwan Walker in the division with Philadelphia. Trevor Williams also in the division with Washington. Same thing with Dom Smith. Uh, Michael Gibbons wound up in Baltimore. And then, no, no small loss. <laughs> and then Jolie Rodriguez, uh, he's in Boston. Now the ones that we signed that really were a big part of the, 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 the spending spree put together by Steve Cohen. Of course, the closer, Edwin Diaz, the center fielder, Brandon Nimmo, one of the better relief pitchers that came out of the bullpen for the Mets from about July on, Adam out of, out of Vino. And then you get to the big guys. You got Justin Verlander, Kodai Senga, Jose Quintana, David Robertson, Tommy Pham, and Donnie Mendick. We'll start with the obvious, Willie, because one of the biggest things regarding last season was the future of Jacob deGrom. And, and should the Mets sign him or should they let him walk? I think we all wanted him back as a member of the Mets but at the right price. And so when we saw the contract that Texas gave him, was it ultimately the right decision for the Mets to let him walk away from the franchise that he had built, or not say he had built, but he had carried the last four or five seasons? So I have a very complicated way of looking at this because the the thing that I, the sensation I had as a Met fan watching Jacob deGrom the last two years it honestly gave me a teeth gritting problem because anytime I saw him take the mound, it felt like I was, you know, walking on eggshells because mm. I was, you know, Wait bra- for him to get bra- hurt? bracing for an injury or bracing for something because you, you had put all your hopes on this interstellar pitcher, a great pitcher, but one that for whatever reason over the last couple of years has failed to make the kind of start depth that you were wanting to have him make and and that's part of why I feel like five years for 185 seemed like a bridge too far for me I think he honestly didn't want to be a part of the organization anymore I don't have that on any authority other than what I've read and, and some of the reporting that I've seen but I do feel like there was kind of a desire from Jake to get away from the bright eyes and bright lights of New York and and go somewhere where there's a little bit less attention on the ball club 
Uh, not that the Rangers, this is not meant to disparage or, or slight their fan base or their following in any way, but the, the pressures and vigors of what happens in Arlington, Texas, uh, are more centered on a team that wears a star on their helmet as opposed to uh, a real baseball town like New York where you have two teams with very passionate and wild fan bases that garner a lot of the attention. So I think that was a big, big part of it. Uh, some people made issues about whether or not it was something involving, you know, the politics of New York kind of going into the conservative and liberal nature. I don't know if that had anything to do with it. I just feel like Texas stepped up to the plate. They wanted to to give him a big, big deal. And I honestly feel like the Mets had a number they didn't want to go, go past mm-hmm. because they'd been burned by this guy. And I think that there was a feeling in the organization where uh, there was uh, – I don't want to sit here and say that they wanted him gone, but I think there's a sense of relief from the organization that – they're not riding on his hopes, which were mercurial at best. And another thing, too, and, and, and this is something, I don't know if, if you shared this with me or I shared it with you, uh, that SI article that came yeah. out about him was eye-opening. Is very eye-opening. He didn't treat his teammates well. He was a bit of a jerk to teammates. And so in that aspect, I feel like there are probably a lot of people who are around the clubhouse who aren't necessarily uh, carrying a torch for number 48. Yeah, I think that was the one thing was that, like, you know, for me, you know, my, my, my Met fandom really does start with that with that 2015 run of the World Series mm-hmm. and, and the, that young quartet of pitching that you never really saw after that. But mm-hmm. Jacob deGrom became the shining star, back-to-back Cy Youngs, and he became dominant. Mm-hmm. He became the reason why I want, you know, like, I, I remember I used to work a job where – I used to. I, I, there was a day where I had to go deliver a package for my boss. I had to drive all the way to Martinsville, Virginia, and back. Right. So it's about a seven-hour round trip. Well, I, I made. I got up early enough to leave and get back home because mm-hmm. the Mets had a random like five thirty afternoon game. Right. And I was not going to miss Jacob Degrom's start. Like that's the type of impact he had. But you know, I read that SI article. You know, you you just hear the way that the guys in the booth would talk about him. Now, once they got access back to him, he was just a really he was just an odd guy. For whatever reason, as dominant as he was on the field, mm. he didn't fit in off the field. Yeah. And, and I think that was something that was, you know, Buck Walter was able to navigate around because he's a world-class manager who's done it, you know, for a really long time. And so when we got to free agency, like, I wanted him back, but there was a number. Like, I think I said, like, at five years, 150, you could sell me on that. Mm-hmm. But once that number increased, I was okay with seeing him go somewhere else. But I think on the flip side, and you can really attest to this more than I can, for lifelong Met fans, we don't have to. You, you gotta, you gotta swallow a pill knowing that Tom Seaver and now Jacob Degrom, arguably the two best pitchers in the history of this franchise, weren't lifelong Mets. Well, the 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 Seaver one is not necessarily his fault. This the Seaver. I mean, I don't, I don't know how much you know about the departure of Tom Seaver from his time with the Mets, but. The Mets chairman of the board at the time, M. Donald Grant, was not a very popular figure in the city. And in 1977, the Mets were floundering under Joe Torre. And there was a war of words that was happening through the media involving Seaver and Nolan Ryan, his old teammate who had gone out to the California Angels. And uh, it was stirred up by somebody who was looked at as an M. Donald Grant plant in the New York uh in the New York media, a guy by the name of Dick Young. And Dick Young wrote an article that basically painted Seaver's wife against uh, Nolan Ryan's wife and basically had reported that the wives were talking to each other and Lynn Ryan was talking to Nancy Seaver about 
oh, how great life is in California. Nolan got a new deal, et cetera, and so on. And that ended up being not necessarily true. Mm. That was a fabricated story, according to Tom. And so that was kind of the the straw that broke the camel's back for Seaver leaving the Mets. And then he came back in 83, and the only reason he didn't finish his career in New York is because Frank Cashin, the only dumb thing he did as a general manager of the Mets, left him exposed in a uh, in a draft that ended up having him sign with the Chicago White Sox. So in, in terms of that, I, I give Seaver a little more grace than I would mm-hmm. DeGrom. Uh, like I said before, I think DeGrom – uh, didn't really want to be a part of the organization, though. The, the, the unfortunate part of it is that anytime you hype up a pitching trio or quartet with this organization, it, it doesn't necessarily have the staying power. The Mets uh, had the the young trio of Seaver, Kuzman, and Ryan. You could throw Gentry in there. Gentry uh, kind of held his own there in that 69 year. Uh, Nolan was kind of replaced by Matt Lack in 73, but those three never really had the, the long tenure that you would have wanted the Mets to have because uh, Matlack was somebody who I feel like was a very underheralded man who was part of that 73 pennant team. Uh, in the 90s, I had Generation K that I grew up with, Isringhausen, Pulsifer, and Wilson. Uh, those three were constantly injured. Izzy came back as a closer, but never really lived up to the hype as a Met in his tenure with the organization. Pulsifer and Wilson both never really made it. Uh, and then, you know, those four that were together in 2015. You know, you had Harvey, you had Wheeler, you had Syndergaard, you had Matz, and none of them are with the organization anymore, and, and even one of them is out of baseball, or at least trying to get back into baseball with Harvey. Uh, it, it's unfortunate, but it's part of the reason why I feel like a lot of organizations now aren't necessarily building their organizations around young pitching anymore. They're letting other organizations develop their pitching and getting them after their season because – the way to success I'm seeing now with a lot of these teams, develop young hitters. Yeah. And that's one thing the Mets have had to try and do because their, their, uh, their minor league system, and I know this from you know doing games in their minor league system for a couple of years, uh, was so credi- incredibly starved for that kind of young hitting. They never really had those kind of young hitting prospects after Reyes and Wright, and, and I think you know once they got Pete Alonzo in, that was one guy who I think kind of spurred the tie to try and change things there for them. They need more players of that ilk as opposed to trying to develop young pitching because I think if you develop a young pitcher, unfortunately they're going to carry a pretty penny, and a lot of times they might end up making that penny elsewhere. Well, you know the, the thing about going into this season is the Mets don't, don't only have to place DeGrom – they also got to replace Chris Bassett and Taiwan Walker, and look, both both of those guys were incredibly flawed. Uh, for Taiwan Walker, it was just the worst thing for him was ever the All Star break. Mm-hmm. Like his his two years in New York before the All Star break, he was All Star level quality, and then after the All Star break, for whatever reason, it's like he got dead arm and he wasn't the same guy. As for Bassett, as good as he was, like you'd look at his numbers and say, man, he got a quality start all the things that qualify, but he would have one inning. And it, the, the one inning, you know, for me was in game three of the NL, uh, of the wild card series where he couldn't get the outs that he needed to get. And I was okay with, with him not being brought back either. And, but the Mets had to go out and replace them. And they did so, as I mentioned, in the form of Justin Verlander, who's coming off another great season with the Astros where they won another World Series championship. Then you've got Jose Quintana, a guy that's just a veteran guy that can eat up a lot of innings. And then you've got the guy that we're all, I think, the most excited for, and and Singa, because he's you know he's from overseas. He's got a a, a 
a, a pitch that Major League Baseball hasn't seen a whole lot. When you look at the, the, the things that the Mets did do to replace the guys that they lost, do you think they did enough to still have one of the best rotations in the NL? Well, first of all, the, the thing about Bassett is that I must have seen every bad Chris Bassett start <laughs> and, like, none of the good ones because I'm going back and, and going back through his game log, and I'm trying to remember where exactly these games were. Like, eight innings of, of one-run ball, no one-earned runs against Cincinnati. I, I missed that game. <laughs> uh, the, the This game against the Braves where he had six innings of one-run ball, uh, only allowed a, a solo homer and two walks. I mean, I, I I don't remember that Chris Bassett. The Chris Bassett I remember is the one, like you said, in, in Game 3 against San Diego where he couldn't get out of the fifth inning. So that 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 to me, unfortunately, he was more defined by, you know, the long ball, unfortunately. Uh, I think that was kind of something that was a bit of a bugaboo for him, especially late in the season. I think that was something that he could – when you're talking about a guy who can't hold balls in, in – in I almost said Shea Stadium – in City Field – you're having an issue, and I think that's a problem where uh, if, if you are Chris Bassett, I know he's a live-and-die kind of fly ball pitcher, but unfortunately those fly balls uh, flew, flew out of the park. Flew a little <laughs> bit of a ways. So looking at the at the Met rotation, I, I do feel like they did a lot to overhaul it. Uh, I know that you're a big fan of of uh, Justin Verlander coming in. I just I have my concerns about – you know, a forty-year-old pitcher like that, and that's—I'm mm-hmm. not trying to sit here and 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 be an alarmist. It's just I—I'm I, not trying to put all my eggs in that basket. And that Verlander and Scherzer, two guys on the wrong side of thirty, are going to anchor a rotation. But the one thing that is—I mean, I, if I just get me and get them to September and October healthy, because I'll take their abilities in October, but. Can they make 25 starts? I mean, I don't know if they can yet because that's going to be something that I feel like is the biggest question that uh, goes alongside them. I think Cookie Carrasco got a bit of a raw deal his first year. He was kind of you know, bouncing around with injury. Uh, I love the Quintana addition. I think he's somebody who uh, has a point to prove. And Senga, I think, is somebody who's a total wild card at this point mm-hmm. because I think he's got all the upside in the world. Uh, the Mets don't have the best hitch history with Asian-born pitchers. Uh, Masato Yoshi was one that they had. They had the final years of Hideo Nomo. You uh, you don't remember Takashi Kashiwata who came back uh, in that. Uh, Jay So uh, was somebody who came up through the Mets system from Korea, never really had, uh, had a good go of it. Uh, and then uh, Daisuke Matsuzaka, who – Again, uh, had it more of his formidable years with uh, with the Boston Red Sox. I'd give you basically a, a running history of all the Mets that they had from Asia <laughs> there from the hist- from from that uh, without even looking it up. But uh, the point that I would say is that I think you have to have a bit of a tempered expectation with him. But if if, if he hits and you can go Verlander, Scherzer, and Senga in a in a short series. That's going to be hard to beat, especially if Senga is everything he's cracked up to be. Well, and the thing is, is that you know when you have Quintana and then you've got uh, you got uh, Carrasco, that also puts Peterson and McGill maybe they're your your bullpen guys, or they're the guys you can deploy to give Scherzer and Verlander, you know, uh, uh, that that extra day that they might need. And that's what we just didn't have in years past. Mm-hmm. Now, now this rotation has depth. Well, you need you need seven starters to get through a season. Yeah, you need. I mean, and and not seven like quality starters, but you need people who can can take the ball when those upper five either get injured or, or have days off, or or you're trying to lengthen your rotation in a way, because 
there is more that's demanded about pitchers in this day and age. Uh, I don't want to say it's more than, you know, the days of, you know, Seaver and Kuzman going nine innings and, you know, going and throwing complete games. But the the rigor that these guys put on their arms now with the, in terms of the torque and the, the miles per hour that they are asked to throw on a day-in, day-out basis and a start-in, start-out basis is such to where it's it's not feasible with the way you're spending money on these assets to ask a guy to make 35 starts. So mm-hmm. that's why I'm saying if I can get 25 out of Scherzer, 25 out of uh, out of Verlander, you know, I'm okay as long as they're healthy by the time September and October roll around. How many games into the Mets season does Keith Hernandez have to issue an apology for making a comment about K-Dup that he shouldn't make on SNY? Uh, I'd say by Father's Day. <laughs> I'd say the over-under at Father's Day. <laughs> Uh, all right, so when I was going through the free agents that were signed, uh, Carlos Correa's name wasn't on that list. And that was a guy that the Mets had signed, and mm-hmm. then he had a physical. And I don't know if you saw the one comment that I, I think it was the Mets doctor or the same doctor that the Mets and the Giants both used. said it was, quote, the worst ankle he's ever seen from a baseball player. Mm-hmm. But that was a guy that, like, the Mets had already pretty much won the offseason. But, when, you know, when, when that was – when we thought he was coming to Flushing – I think we were already starting to hoist the World Series trophy. I, mm-hmm. I, I think we actually sent a text that, like, holy crap, we're going to win a World Series. Right. One thing that I think we were really frustrated with Billy Epler last year at the deadline was they didn't add enough pop to the offense. Mm-hmm. We knew they needed some more firepower because the pitching wasn't going to hold up. It doesn't. You know, you're not, you're not going to pitch the way that they were pitching in the first half for 162 and then the postseason. So you bring back Brandon Nimmo who maybe is the best leadoff guy in baseball if you if you really dive into the analytics side of things. But outside of that, the other guys that they added from an offensive standpoint, Tommy Pham, who's a guy that might be getting fights over fantasy football leagues, mm. and then you got Danny Mendick. Do you think they did enough offensively? I know I know Vogelback is back on a team-friendly deal. Your, also- your, your fat uncle, <laughs> although, <laughs> he, although not as fat yeah, now. He, he's lost 20, 30 pounds. Alonzo's in the best shape of his life. When you look at this team from an offensive standpoint, are you seeing, okay, th- this is a lineup that can carry us 162? Or are you seeing a lineup that, come the trade deadline, we're going to be asking Billy Epler, go get us another bat? I still think they're one bat short. Um, I. And I think that I, – I don't know where that bat plays, if it's an outfield bat or if it's somebody who can play third. I mean, the the issue that I had is that you know Correa represented somebody to me who really could protect Pete Alonso Because if you're going to bat Alonzo behind Lindor – uh, I feel like you're going to have a lot of pitching around uh, Alonzo to get to what's behind him. Now you could throw McNeil there, and there are a lot of ways that that Buck Showalter can can rework the lineup to make sure that that there is a threatening hitter behind Pete Alonzo. But it can't be Eduardo Escobar. I'm sorry, I, I'm not trying to sit here and, and say that that he's somebody who disappointed because he had some very big hits mm-hmm. in 2022. But there were also more times where you know he would strike out with men on base, and he would not come through in the clutch. And he was also hurt for a little bit part of the year too. So, in that aspect, I look at the Mets and I say they need somebody to make sure that Pete Alonso can be the all-out threat that he can be. Because there are times where Pete Alonso is going to be, you know, going through a bit of a, a slump when it comes to strikeouts. You know, Pete's strikeout numbers, unfortunately, are continuing to climb, and that's something that has me very, very concerned. But part of the reason I think they climbed last year is because there wasn't anybody behind him that could actually protect him and force a pitcher to have to be in the strike zone with him. There were a lot of things 
that he did outside of the strike zone last year that he didn't do the years before because he had ample protection in this lineup. And I think that's a big, big part of why I feel like they're probably going to be in the market for another hitter come the trade deadline. I just wonder if if, if there's cautious optimism inside that front office that that's going to come in the form of Francisco Alvarez. Of course, Brett Beatty, you know, his first career hit in Major League Baseball was a home run against the Braves. You got Mark Vientos. But that's cautious optimism. Yeah. Or, uh, optimism. I, I'd much rather go get, especially if we're wanting to chase a pennant, I'd much rather have a seasoned bat that's going to be out there like there is every trade deadline, it seems like, as opposed to asking a first- or second-year player to help spark the offense. They're, they're, they're still talking about Alvarez like he's somebody who's going to start the year at Syracuse, which I think is foolish. I mm. think I think Alvarez is, is your DH. I think he has to be. And then he catches maybe every fourth day yeah. uh, in, fa- in favor of Nito. And, and, and that's the other part of it that I didn't like is I, I, I don't know if they needed another bridge catcher to, to escort Alvarez through – uh, through the 23 season because while as much as you want to try and make him the everyday catcher this year, I still feel like you have to take him a little bit slower because he has to learn how to call games with this, with this pitching staff. Mm-hmm. He has to learn how to, to be a receiver and, and, and learn the aspects of the game in that manner at the major league level. I don't think he's there yet. And the one thing that we also know about his hitting is that anytime he goes up to a level, and, and you've made this point a couple different times to me privately – he has a struggle point yeah. at the beginning. He has an acclimation period where you know he's hitting in the 100s when he's trying to catch up to the big league pitching or the AAA pitching or the AA pitching. He gets there eventually. Oh yeah, he does. But and when it does, it's fun to watch. But I think they you need to start that clock as soon as possible. And and on Beatty, I mean, I think that's a lot to put on the young man. I, I don't know if he's David Wright yet. I don't think he is. I don't think anybody. At, I don't think anybody is. But I do feel like from that aspect, uh, trying to to force that kind of uh, those kind of expectations on that young man, it's 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 a lot right now. The last thing we're going to discuss before we do get out of here starts, or we, we'll circle back around to the owner. Because Steve Cohen, let's just put it point blank, he pissed off a lot of people this, this winter. Good. With the way that he, he spent. But like you said, and I've listened to a couple of interviews he's done uh, be, you know, before spring training and, and when he was at uh, Port St. Uh, uh, Lucie the other day, he didn't think that it was outrageous. First off, he admitted that he was uh, that, that that inflation does exist in baseball mm-hmm. because numbers were up 20-30% that that caught him off guard. But when you've got the record payroll that this that this team has. I mean, they they're they're plus 130 to the second highest team in Major League Baseball, which is the Yankees, which is usually the owner of the highest payroll in baseball. How much more pressure does that add to this team to perform because no matter what when they go to Baltimore, Cleveland, Tampa Bay, wherever it is they got to go, they're going to be vilified from the fan base and then the ownerships of those teams because now there's pressure on those owners to spend like Steve Cohen and the Mets are. I do want to at least uh, correct my earlier point. I do know that they, they got Omar Navarez at the catcher position too as well, talking about the catcher. So I, I didn't want to neglect signing him. I would have thought they would have tried to go and get somebody more of a – a starter level guy, so I I didn't want to neglect Nomar Navarez on my previous point, but to your point you're making about about Cohen, I, I love the refreshing honesty that that he brings to the table, and the thing that I I love that he said the best this offseason is that I probably had to spend a lot more money than I originally thought, but that's okay because I want to win, and it, it also 
comes with expectations. But I think the one thing he also said is just because I spent all this money doesn't mean I expect the World Series this year. He's like the anti-Steinbrenner in that way. And that, you know, just because I spend the money doesn't mean that I feel like we're going to be a World Series contender this year. There is some, there is a bit of humility that comes along with it for, for Cohen. But there is still that desire to be like, hey, you know, we're sitting at 20 games over 500 at the end of July. We're, we're going to go get a hitter. Like, like that's mm. the thing I think that, that Met fans really love. And even last year, I, I think the problem for them was while they had the desire to do that, the deals just weren't there for them. And that's the problem that, you know, that's that's on the onus. The onus is on the GM there to make those deals happen and, and make something out of nothing because I think the the biggest challenge I think now for Billy Epler is how do you not be Sandy Alderson? Because what was the one thing that Sandy Alderson never had is that he never had kind of that, that big deal other than, you know, the Ioannis Cespedes deal at the end of 15 that really cemented his legacy as somebody who – knows how to get you through a season. Anybody can anybody can sign guys in the offseason because they're on the open market. But if you can make a deal at the trade deadline to make your team better, I, I remember, you know, some of the deals you mentioned the Cardinals uh in twenty eleven when they were able to make that big run, they were basically way out of a playoff spot in last place. And uh their their general manager John Mozalock had an incredible trade deadline that year. Uh, brought in a bunch of guys, uh, reworked that bullpen, uh, and also reworked uh, the the bench and got some more bats on, on the bench. Look at Alex Anthopoulos of the Braves doing that yep. a couple of years ago for their World Series championship. They had an amazing trade deadline where they reworked their bullpen. And they got a couple of bats, and they got themselves a championship. Those are the general managers you look towards and say, those are the guys who are the leaders at that position. Can Billy Epler get to that level because he's going to need to make a deal at some point in July that puts the Mets over the hump? Because I don't know if they're there just yet. I think the thing about Cohen, as much as I listen to him talk, is he's measured. And so, as he said, like, look, yeah, I spent, but you know, numbers were up. And he also said, what's the best way for me to get my payroll down? We've got to develop the farm system. That's one thing, if you listen to him talk, he, he talks about that farm system more than more than the team that's actually on the field mm-hmm. because he knows that's the key to you know having a a long period of success something this franchise quite frankly just has never experienced and so I think if we can develop Alvarez Beatty Vientos all those guys and, and they become what we want them to become well then you don't you don't got to go pay 162 million to you know uh, a, a guy that's not a member of the organization. I, I think with Epler, I, I think you're right. I, I think if this team's sitting there in July and it's evident that they are going to be in the race for the NL East, which I think is going to be a lot tougher this year given how good the Braves are. The Phillies got better this offseason. Um, but if, if they're there, I think he'll be – there'll be a greater sense of urgency because Steve Cohen will say, I've got the money, we've got the resources. But like you mentioned, the deals weren't there last year because everyone wanted a Soto. Mm-hmm. But – they were also sending Josh Bell along with them, and that would have depleted the farm right. system. Well, you think about the golden ages of Met baseball. Like Wright and Reyes were homegrown. Alonzo, McNeil, same kind of mm-hmm. thing. The Mets of the 80s. The, the outside additions from that team were Hernandez, Carter, and, and, and Ojeda for the most part. Everything else was homegrown. Gooden was homegrown. Strawberry was homegrown. Mookie came from another organization, was homegrown. So it, it, it's it's a scenario there. Ron Darling, homegrown. So when you think about the way that that organization developed, I do feel like 
they need to get kind of more of those prospects like the Vientoses, like the Beatys, more bi- and Alvarez, more big league ready. But I also do feel like it comes down to can you make that move when it's needed the most because a lot of teams in this era of baseball are defined by how they finish down the stretch, and they're going to need something like that in order to make that happen. Yeah, no, you, you brought up a great point. You look at the last handful of World Series winners, most of those teams, they won the trade deadline. And mm-hmm. so I think if the Mets are a lot more aggressive this time around, if, if they're in a position to be aggressive, I think we'll be a lot more comfortable and confident in this team making a run to the Fall Classic. Well, that's your look at the offseason uh, recap. Willie, you have anything else you want to add, buddy? I just I'm I'm ready to get going. I want I want to see games. I want to see everything happen, and uh, hopefully uh, we can ring in a championship this year, the first year of Flushing's finest. We do have a inter squad scrimmage today, and then of course their first two uh, spring training games are tomorrow. But I know with the Charlotte FC season and the MLS season kicking off tomorrow for you, that's where you know y- your attention will be, and rightfully so. I'll I'll. Uh... I'll, I'll I'll sit through it and uh, possibly uh, have it as I'm uh, getting ready for the game tomorrow. <laughs> but with that, guys, it is going to wrap up this edition of the show. But we do encourage you guys to rate, review, and ultimately subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on every major podcasting platform, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Uh, rate it, review myself, review Willie P. But more importantly, guys, we want you guys to hit that subscribe button. That way you don't miss any edition of the show throughout the remainder of the baseball season. What that is going to wrap up this edition of the show. I want to thank uh, Willie for hosting with me. We want to thank you guys for listening. And as always, let's go Go Mets. Mets.